0: Matthew chapter 14. It's good to see you here this morning. I hope you've had a a blessed week and even if you had a hard week, I hope the Lord has been with you and present with you. You've sensed his presence. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 14 and we're looking at the story of Jesus walking on water. And as you make your way there, I want you to think back to a time when maybe you were in school and you failed a test miserably I think about the time when I had to take the SATs not that you really fail the SATs but I know that that I did not do as well in the SAT as I had hoped because on the way there I plowed into a mailbox two yards from the driveway of where I lived so I got in the car backed out of the driveway was trying to put a CD into the CD player, missed, it rolled onto the floor, and, and me being a student driver, I did the very smart thing of when I leaned over to grab the CD, I pulled the steering wheel with me, and as I'm looking down, I just hear this crash noise, and I looked up, and there's a mailbox on the hood, the windshield is, and I still had to go take the SAT. So I remember getting there and just being so frazzled and, uh, and just thinking, like, this is not going to go well. Uh, and then I went to college, and I remember I took statistics. And I remember the first day the professor showed up, and he looked like he had just finished remodeling a house. He had, like, sweatpants on, a shirt. He looked like he hadn't brushed his hair in, like, a month. There were paint, there's paint stains all over it. He had to borrow a syllabus from one of the students because he forgot to bring one. And so immediately I thought, I am not going to want to do this class. And so instead of doing the sensible thing and dropping the class before the deadline, I just stopped going and got an F. And so my GPA plummeted, and uh, that happened uh, more than I'd care to admit. But I want to make a confession, okay? Okay. I'd like to say that after I became a Christian, I did not get an F in any classes, but well, that's not true, okay? I, I'm going to, they say confession's good for the soul, so I'm going to confess something right now. I will never be in any high leadership within the Southern Baptist Convention because the one F that I have on my seminary track record is an F in Baptist history, Now, I feel like that needs some explanation. It was bad scheduling. I picked an 8 o'clock class on Mondays, right? 8 o'clock class on Mondays, Sundays being what they were, and it just didn't work. I just, it did not work, and I took an F. My GPA was high enough that it wasn't going to cause an issue. So, we've all failed tests, right? How many of you uh, maybe failed your driver's test the first time? Oh, got another one back there, right? Okay. How many of you had to take a test for uh, the, the degree you have? Maybe it was a certification for the role that you have, and maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't fail, but you didn't do as well as you thought you were going to. Uh, I have a friend that I know that it took him several times, not like 20, but he did not do uh, well on the bar exam, and he took it uh, two more times after that. We've all failed tests. We've all failed, right? We know what failure feels like, but we've also all failed when God has tested us. There comes a time when you're walking with the Lord, when you're following the Lord Jesus, and he puts a test in front of you, and you fail miserably, and you know it's a test, You know what the Bible says. You know what you ought to do. And yet, as plain as day, as if somebody has slid a pop quiz on your desk, you knew it was a test and you bombed. Let me ask you, when that happens, what do you think is Jesus' response to you? What do you think God's response is to your massive failure? Failure. The way you answer that question says more about who God, it says more about what you believe about God than who God really is. Because you may respond to that answer with an image, with a portrait, with an understanding of God that is not accurate. Accurate. When we look in Matthew chapter 14, the text we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see how God responds, how Jesus responds when we're given a test and we fail miserably. We come to Matthew chapter 14, verse 22 through 33. And just, it's been a while since we were in Matthew, but if you remember two weeks ago, Jesus has just fed. Over 5,000, more like 15,000 people. He's done this great miracle. He has taught the disciples. He has shown them that he is more than powerful to provide for people. And we get into this next section. And you notice that the tone shifts a little bit. So if you think about it, it's sort of like a montage in a movie. We camped out on the miracle and the feeding of the 5,000. But now... We, we see a shift in the tone because notice what it says in verse 22. It says immediately. Then look at verse 27, immediately. And then look at verse 31, immediately. So this is an action-packed text. We, we need to understand that, that this is like a montage. We're seeing these things happen very quickly, and we are to understand what's taking place. And so what does it say? Well, the text is structured around these three immediately's. It says in verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Now, think about this. What I want you to understand about these immediately's is when you're acting this fast, you don't have time to consider what are the ramifications. Am I doing this right? When you're acting this fast, you're acting out of who you are. Does that make sense? They say that a crisis doesn't—it doesn't, uh, it doesn't uh, create character; it reveals character, right? So when we're seeing Jesus doing this, this is coming out of who He is. He is acting almost as if He is on cruise control. So what we see about Jesus is He tells them, "Go, get in the boat, and go to the other side." Now. Obviously, the expectation is Jesus is going to meet them on the other side. But think about that. If they're taking a boat, they're going to be taking the short way. What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to walk all the way around? No, Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to give a test. He knows exactly what he's getting ready to do. Jesus is never unsure about what's about to take place. So he says immediately knowing. Get in the boat. Go to the other side. And then it says he dismissed the crowds. Now look at this verse 23. After dismissing the crowds he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And if we just stop there. Understand this. What Jesus is about to do. Is couched and framed by his closeness with the Father. You say, why does that matter? Well, because it matters on the way the passage ends. You see, Jesus is going up on the mountain to commune with the Father, to be with the Father. Why? Well, not just as an example, but because he loves the Father and he is the image of the invisible God, he is so close to the Father that not only does he pray and commune with the Father, but when we look at Jesus, we see God as he really is. If we want to know what the Father is like, we look to Jesus. He is the exact image and imprint of the invisible God. So everything we're going to read in this text is telling us something, not just about who Jesus is, but who God is. The way Jesus responds is the way the Father responds. The way Jesus responds is the way God responds when you fail. So he goes up and he prays. And and we also need to say that this miracle that he does is not separate from his relationship and his dependence on the Father. Jesus says, I can do nothing of my own accord but that which the Father commands me. Right? He's connected he does the will of the Father. So he's up there on the mountain praying. And I'll say this. Think about this. Jesus is, is in a sense, waiting for uh, the right time. And so just as an aside, what is Jesus doing when he has some free time? He's praying. You find yourself in a waiting room. You find yourself in traffic. Would not be a bad idea to pray. But notice it says, meanwhile, so that's the montage. We sent the people out. We see the disciples get in the boat, and we see Jesus ascending in the mountain. All this is happening. But then, meanwhile, the, the camera flashes back to the boat, and now the boat's already far out from land. We, we pan around, and we see, Well, if we have to swim anywhere, it's not good. It's a long way from land, but now look at what it says. It's battered by waves. Why? Because the wind was against them. There has come a storm such that it is blowing against them. It's beating the waves. It's battering the waves. It has this echo of Jonah being on the boat, and the storm was, was beating and tossing the ship, and here they are. And, and think about how hopeless this may have felt. You're in a boat, you cannot swim to shore, and there is a storm taking place. What do you do? What do you do? But notice, it's not just that. It says the wind was against them, but then look at verse 25. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea very early in the morning. So, not only when it says very early in the morning, this is like between three and six o'clock in the morning. So, they had dinner and they've been out at sea without sleep for hours. They're tired, they're scared, they're unsure, they don't know what's going to happen, but But don't miss this. Jesus came toward them walking on the sea. Just the language that's used here, when it says walking on, when I say I'm walking on the stage, what's happening? The bottom of my feet is making contact. We get this zoom-in picture of The feet of Jesus just slowly walking on the top of the water. He comes to them in the middle of the storm. Now notice, Jesus is not concerned. He's not stressed out. He's not panicking. Jesus is going for a stroll on top of water in the middle of a storm. Job chapter 9. Verse 4, Job's responding to uh, one of his companions who are trying to be helpful but being less than helpful. And he says, Everybody knows the Lord establishes the mountains, and it's also the Lord who walks on the waves of the sea. Jesus is not just a prophet, He's not just a man, He's God. He's God come in the flesh. And he's walking on the sea. He's exercising this this power that he has because all things were created by him and through him and for him. He is so sovereign over the chaos that he takes a stroll on top of it. You want to talk about how powerful Jesus is? Jesus is able. Think about that. Jesus treats the storm on the sea... Like it's a concrete pathway, like it's a trail in the park. He's just walking, demonstrating that he's God. He's Creator. He's the one that knows every single. Let ad- me think about this. If there's one thing we know about water, it's that you don't stand on it, right? When you analyze that on a molecular level I mean, think about this. think about how the atoms have to come together and hold together, and the, and the force that Jesus is able he knows all of that, and he's able to make it such that when he puts his full weight on those exact same atoms that you and I would put our feet on and we would sink to the bottom, he controls it so that it holds him up. You would talk about power. Jesus is walking. And then the disciples see him in verse 26. They saw him walking on the sea. And then, it may come as a surprise to you, they were terrified. Uh, Do you think you would be too? They are so scared they say, it's a ghost. Now, let's be honest. If you're on a boat in the middle of a storm and you see some figure walking on the water you've never seen this before you kind of live in a culture where a ghost is not the worst idea so they cry out look at what it says they said that he's a ghost and they cry out in fear So here is this powerful creator, the God of the cosmos, who upholds the universe by the power of his word walking on the water. And immediately, the second immediately, as soon as they, they utter their fear, he speaks to them. And what does he say? Does he mock them? Does he chastise them? Does he say a ghost? Really? No, he says, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He is so powerful. He is so great. And he is unbelievably far and above what we can imagine. And yet he's so tender that when he sees that they're scared, he says, don't be afraid. Immediately, because that's who he is, folks. When we're scared, he doesn't chastise us, but he says, don't be afraid. He says, have courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter hears this. And Peter's a little unsure because he says, I mean, Jesus says, it is I. But can I give you a piece of advice? If a ghost comes walking on the sea and they try to tell you who they are, you might want to make sure that they are who they say they are. So Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And then verse 29, Jesus says, come. Now look at this. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came toward Jesus. For all of Peter's faults, for all of his shortcomings, for all the silly and idiotic things that Peter will do, understand Peter's a fisherman. He has spent his life on the water, and he knows that every time you climb out of a boat... You do not walk on the water. He may have had friends that have fallen over and drowned. He has seen what happens when you step out of the boat and onto the water. You don't walk on the water. And what does Peter say? Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. And so Peter a fisherman, a man who's been on the water his whole life, climbs out of the boat, and he steps onto the stormy waters, and he starts walking toward Jesus. I love how Matthew portrays this, that he's walking on the water. He's doing this. So notice this. Jesus is not just is powerful enough to make sure that he walks on the water. He can look at every single atom where Peter's walking, and he says, stay, stay. Stay, stay. And they obey. And it says he came toward Jesus. This idea of toward. Peter is looking at Jesus. He's walking toward Jesus. He has his eyes fixed on Jesus. So, so far, Peter's doing pretty well. He looks like he may ace this test. Jesus says, it's me, don't be afraid. Peter says, okay, if it's you, tell me to come and I'll come. I won't be afraid. I'll walk out there. I'm going to ace this thing. But then what happens? But, verse 30, when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. Oh, but Peter, Jesus just told you, don't be afraid. He just said, come. Come. He told you it was okay. And because he was afraid, he begins to sink and he cries out, Lord, save me. Now stop right there. Look at me. He's just failed, he's flunked the test. Now, Imagine you're in that same position. Maybe you are in that position right now. Maybe you found yourself in that position this week. Or you might find yourself in that position uh, in the coming days where you find yourself at this very moment where you're tested and you fail. What is Jesus' response? Immediately, he made the disciples go. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them. He's acting out of his character Who he is. Look at verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught a hold of him. Why would he do that? Because that's who he is. Peter's thinking... Jesus doesn't look at him and say, Nope, Peter, you got to come on up yourself. (laughs) He doesn't look at Peter and say, See, I knew it. He doesn't look at Peter and say, I can't believe that you've done this. But what does the rest say? It says in verse 31. He caught a hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So notice in John chapter 1 and verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of of the only son of the father. And then John uses this phrase full of grace and truth. That's what we see right here. But I want you to notice the order. He cries out, save me. And immediately, Jesus saves him. He shows grace, but he also speaks truth. He doesn't let Peter, he doesn't just ignore that Peter failed. And he doesn't mind communicating to Peter and saying, look, here's where you went wrong. This is the truth. You have little faith. Why did you doubt? And sometimes we read this and we say, Oh man, Peter had such little faith. If he would had real faith, Okay, next time there's a storm and you're in a boat, I want to see you step out. Okay? So he might have had little faith compared into how much Jesus knows about faith. But for Peter... And for us, I think he exhibited tremendous faith. Sometimes we read this, you of little faith, and we think, like, it's just a matter of degrees. Like, he was right here, but if he had just been right here, it would have been... No, 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 no. We fail to understand the width of faith that Jesus is talking about here, but it's still of little faith. In fact, it's actually a word that means... He uses this throughout the Gospels of people who doubt, who don't have a deep... Faith, and and I think we also need to give Peter a a little bit of understanding that this is pre Pentecost, this is pre Holy Spirit, pre resurrection. Okay, this is the same Peter who gets scared of the way, but this is also the same Peter in Acts when the the Jewish leaders say, You need to stop preaching about Jesus, and they say, (laughs) You know, well, you, you can say that, but really, we must obey God rather than men, right? The same Peter. But what I want you to see is if we switch those around, if we switch, instead of being grace and truth, if it's truth and grace, then we would be utterly hopeless. Because what would happen? Imagine, imagine how this would play out. Peter says, Lord, save me. But then Jesus, first thing he says, without even reaching a hand, without even trying to help, says, Peter, why are you you have such little faith? And Peter, you know, Peter's swallowing water, bobbing up and down. It says, and Jesus goes, we're going to get this sorted out before I help you. If it's truth and then grace, we are utterly hopeless, folks. If Jesus can only save us once we get all our ducks in a row, once we get all our doubts sorted out, once we get all of our fears, all of our figures, once we get everything out. If we have to do all of that and then he'll save us, that's not grace. But Jesus, because of who he is, reached out his hand and caught a hold of Peter And said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, let's talk about doubt for a second. There's no question that Peter doubted, right? And and, and that's something that that he has to deal with. But but sometimes in the church, we treat doubt as the unforgivable sin. As if somehow, if we ever doubt at any moment a a promise of God or, or, or something the Bible teaches... Or maybe even our own salvation that somehow we, we've, uh, you know, we've committed the unforgivable sin or we don't really believe. But let me tell you something, that same word for doubt occurs in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. When Jesus is resurrected and it said some of them worshipped but some doubted. That's how the gospel ends. And so Matthew really, I think, is honest in understanding that doubt is something that we will wrestle with. But it doesn't change the fact that there's a commission. It doesn't change the fact that we're called to follow the Lord, to be obedient. But Jesus says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So we get to verse 32. The scene kind of slows down says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Well, that's strange. It's strange that a storm would just turn off like clockwork as soon as Jesus gets in the boat. I wonder why that is. What do you think Matthew's saying? Who do you think even caused the storm? The same one that's walking on it. Once he's done with the storm, it's over. Think about that. Jesus uses a storm on the sea like a microwave. I don't know how you use a microwave, but here's my philosophy to a microwave. You just set it for 50 minutes, and then whatever you need to use of that 50 minutes, you cook it, and then you're done, right? That's a little bit of an exaggeration. but but Okay, so how many of you are like the exact number, people? Like you have to get like the exact number. Like if you're popping popcorn, and it says two minutes, you put two minutes in, and then if it needs more, you like add 30 seconds, you do that. There's those kinds of people. And then there's the kinds of it says, okay, three minutes. I'm going to figure it's probably not going to be done. This is not a great microwave. I'm going to add a minute. And then you, you're, when it's over, you just clear it, right? That's how Jesus uses a storm. Once he's done, he's done. He just presses, boop, cancel. He gets in the boat. But notice what it says. Then those in the boat worshipped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. A moment of theological clarity and honesty. They realize who this one is. And what Matthew's telling us, notice there's two sides to this. Not really two sides, but but two ways that he further argues that Jesus is God. It says, first of all, they worshipped him. As a Jew, you don't worship anyone but the one true God. You don't bow and worship some man, any man. You worship God and God alone. Matthew saying, everybody in that boat worshiped Jesus. Saying what? Truly, you are the son of God. Truly, you really are. God's son and what they mean by that is that he is sent by God that he is the son of God he is the son of the father so go back up it says he was praying he had that closeness with the father but that closeness is not just through prayer it's closeness because he is God he's the son of God you say why does all that matter well first of all it's very clear in the new testament and in in in, among the disciples, they believed Jesus was God. This was not something that was made up later. Granted, Matthew's gospel is written later, but this is something the church believed from the very beginning. Jesus, Jesus did not get promoted through history to eventually become God. No, he was God, and they understood him as God. But secondly, it says that if we see the way Jesus responds to Peter, that's the exact way That God responds. So let's bring it home. Let's bring it home a little bit. When you fail. Maybe you fail and you get yourself into trouble. You get yourself into a difficult situation. You You get in over your head. Like Peter. And you fail. And you might cry out. This Lord save me. What do you imagine is God's response to you? What Jesus shows us is that when his people fail, because he's God, he responds to us with grace and truth. When you fail, Christian, Don't think for a second that the moment you cry out for deliverance, for help, for salvation, that God does not come running. What does it say in verse 31? Immediately. Immediately. every time I fail if I cry out to him he comes immediately every time you fail he comes when you cry out he comes immediately he doesn't stand there and shake his head he doesn't He doesn't wait to see if you can save yourself. So think of it this way. We we might have this image that somehow Jesus begrudgingly saves sinners. That he begrudgingly delivers his people. That when you fail again that he feels forced or disappointed or angry or that, he, that, that, he, that he's shaking his head in shame. What this text tells us is that Jesus delights in saving his people. He delights and showing grace and truth because that's who he is. So, you failed. What do you do? Number one, you cry out to the Lord. That's what Peter did. He began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, deliver me. Now, if you're a Christian, You're not asking Jesus to save you again. The one time you trust in Jesus, when you you place your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you're saved. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ. But sometimes you have to say, Save me, Lord, in the sense of get me out of this situation. Help me with this issue. I don't know what to do in this situation. Deliver me. Save me. but how is it that we can do that how can how can Jesus look on the Jesus tells Peter you have little faith have you ever felt that way have you ever felt like you've trusted in Jesus like you you, you know you say i i I I really do, the the Spirit testifies that I placed my faith in Jesus, I trusted in Jesus Christ, but then I look at it, my performance, and I look at it, and, and and it says, you just say to yourself, like, I'm not even really sure. You start questioning the quality of your faith, the quantity of your faith, but listen, We cannot say this enough. You are not saved by the amount of faith you have in Christ. Peter gets called you of little faith, but he had just enough faith in a perfect Savior to cry out to him and God saved him. A little bit of imperfect faith in a perfect Savior. If it's true, genuine, saving faith, that little bit of faith in Christ is enough. You're here this morning and you're hanging on to your assurance by a thread. Be encouraged by Jesus' response to Peter that he saved him even though he was of little faith. But how can Jesus do this? What is our great hope in all of this? Well, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He knows that there is coming A day, not long from this day right here where he is going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be crucified. He's going to have the justice of God towards our sins poured out on him. And and the wrath of God for our sins is going to be exhausted. Jesus is going to take our place and be a perfect sacrifice, a perfect substitute to cover the sins of his people, past, present, and future Such that now, as a Christian, when you cry out, Lord, save me. It's not Jesus saying to you, fix it first. But there's that immediately stretching out his hand and delivering. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. Maybe... Maybe you, you've been trying to get your life together. Maybe you've been trying to make sure, like, I want to get this out of the way before I, I follow Jesus because I, I don't want to have that when I say I follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've never trusted in Jesus because you've been trusting and in, in you, you go to church, you, you tithe, or, you know, you haven't killed anybody, at least recently, and that was a joke. But, but you cannot be good enough. The model that Jesus sets here is that those who cry out to him in faith, who trust in him enough to cry out to him, those are the ones that he saves. And so what's left for you this morning is not to do anything. It's, in fact, to realize that there's nothing you can do. And so you, you cast yourself, you throw yourself What Jesus did You acknowledge that you've sinned That you've been separated from God Your sin has separated you But that Jesus paid the price for you When he died on the cross That he rose again So that you might have eternal life If you believe in what Jesus did You might still have doubts You might still have questions Your life might still be a complete and total mess If you trust Jesus today It's not going to all change overnight But in another sense, that's not how Jesus operates. It's not get all that stuff sorted out. Trust him and be saved. How does Jesus respond to us with grace and truth? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the goodness and the glory that's revealed in in you through Jesus Christ who's full of grace and truth. Lord, we confess our failures. We confess that we are imperfect followers of a perfect Savior. And Lord, maybe we need that assurance today that you will receive us. God, no matter how small our faith is this morning, God, help us to see that when we entrusted it into the hands of the one Who stretched out to deliver Peter. Who stretched out to control the sea. Who stretched out his hand on a cross. When we put our our faith in you. We are met with love and grace and truth. Let that draw us in. Let that be the assurance that we have today. That that's the kind of God you are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, now is the time for you to respond as the Lord leads. I'll be down here at the front. I'd be happy to pray with you. If there's anything that you need prayer for or would like for me to pray with you, or if you have questions, uh, I'd be happy to do that. Let's take a moment and you respond as the Lord leads where you are. We simply want to say thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so well. Thank you, Lord, that you are gracious towards our our frailty. God, that you are gentle towards our weakness. That you are a good, shepherd who leads and loves us. We simply give you the praise and the glory for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, Thank you so much for being here this morning. I hope it's been encouraging and I hope you've been blessed. Let me turn my microphone on. On That might help. There we go. we uh, have a couple of things we need to do this morning, but uh, if you're a guest, I know we have several guests with us this morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, if you would do us a favor, just drop your information in the box back there. We have some cards you can fill out just to let us know that you were here. We would really appreciate that. Uh, at this time, I'm going to ask Jane Wolf if she'll come on up. She's got a couple things that she would like to ask uh, or announce and ask some help with. So come on up, Jane. I'm thankful for this sister and all that she does. You, you okay? <laughs> this
1: is why I need help. I can't step up a step. So um, I just want to, I'm Jane, in case some of you don't know who I am, but I wanted to tell you a couple of things about what God's doing um, in the life of the nonprofit that I am in charge of. Um, we have had a 10-year dream of having a transitional house. Now, what's a transitional house? <laughs> Good question. Um, It is a house that we're going to turn into what we call the greenhouse, where women can come and they can have 18 months to stay in this house and go through um, faith-based programs to help them get a job, help them um, heal and grow. Isn't that what a greenhouse does? You put plants in there and it protects them and keeps them safe while they heal and grow our audience is women who are coming out of prison, have been incarcerated, and women who are coming out of rehab. And a lot of those women are struggling or have struggled with addiction. So um, we have a focus on relapse prevention, not just addiction, but relapse of bad behavior that lands you in prison <laughs> um, also. So, Why am I telling you all this? Because we closed on our house on July 17th, and it is at the intersection of, um, really at Corinth Holder, right at the intersection of 96 and 231. And it needs lots of love and care. And on the 27th, we need a demo team, you know, like on Fixer Upper where Chip goes in with the sledgehammer and demos. That's what we need. We need some strong men who are willing to come on August 22nd, 27th, and help us. We have two bathrooms we've got to rip out, some flooring we've got to rip out. Um, and if demo's not your thing, well, we have some other things that you might be interested in doing. We need somebody who can put up OSB board in our workshop. We have an incredible workshop for these ladies to learn some skills and to finished some projects. And so we need some OSB put up. About two-thirds of the workshop is done. Why they left some big gaps with no insulation and no OSB, I don't know. But that's what it looks like. It's a little random, so we need some help with that. And it had this piece of property has gorgeous, gorgeous landscaping. But it also has gorgeous gorgeous weeds that are <laughs> controlling the landscaping so if any of those are a niche that you have or you think you might have a skill that would help us start to get this house ready that would be such an amazing thing so um if you want to i need to know who can help eventually because we want to feed you lunch and take care of you and you need to bring your tools because. I think we only have maybe like a shovel and a rake and a sledgehammer at this point in time so um that would be awesome if you could help that is august 27th okay the next thing is yes oh 26 sorry thank you i knew i was going to get that wrong it's the 26th and you can also see jeff if you can help because (laughs) Um, any you can see me my husband jeff and we'll put your name down on a piece of paper and um, hopefully that day um, we can get all of it done because it's not a humongous amount. Okay, the next thing I wanna tell you about is ladies, if you are interested in participating with the greenhouse, we would love to have you especially as mentors because we wanna have at least three mentors for every lady that we have. And so um, starting September 19th, which is a Tuesday, I will be teaching a mentoring class again. I've taught it twice this summer and I'll be doing the third time so that you can come and we can all learn the philosophy of how to help and not hurt. And it's really important because we want all of the ladies who are helping in the greenhouse to be on the same page. And it's really a great course. Whether you help us or not, it's still available. And it really, really helps you to understand brokenness, addiction, and how we can better serve people in that arena. Um, and the third thing is, um, I t- starting September 19th in the morning at 9.30, is a Bible study here, and it'll meet in the fellowship hall. We started it kind of in the spring we did, or winter, and we did one section called Learning to See God Clearly, and now we're moving into Learning to See Yourself Correctly. You don't have to go in order, so don't worry if you want to come to this one that you missed the last one. And we study God's word and what how he created us and how special we are in the family of God. So uh, we would... Oh, and the last thing. I need golfers. I know there's some golfers out here, but we have a fundraising golf tournament on October 6th. Why are we having a fundraiser golf tournament? To raise money for this greenhouse. <laughs> so... Um, Anybody who wants to golf, and we'd love to have some women golfers, so if you're a woman golfer out there, we need you, and it's at Wendell Country Club on October the 6th. So, all of this, you can see me or Greg or um, Jeff over here, and we'll figure it out. (laughs) Thank you. All
0: right, thank you so much. Okay, um, Next thing we want to do is uh, remind you that immediately following worship, we're going to have an interest meeting for some Spanish classes that are possibilities for you to enjoy and enroll in. And uh, we've got several options, several different choices that you can participate in. Uh, But that's going to be immediately following the service in the fellowship hall. I am really excited about this. Um, And I thought I'd just share why... It'd be good for you to to maybe learn some Spanish. Number one, it opens up doors. Uh, I am by no means a fluent Spanish speaker. Uh, I've memorized enough phrases to get myself in trouble. Um, uh, but just last weekend, we went out to eat. We had gone to this place several times, and uh, I'll just be honest: you know, the way I I get into a conversation in Spanish, I just kind of wait for what I call the moment. There's a moment because let's just be honest, just because somebody looks like they may speak Spanish doesn't mean they do speak Spanish. And it's very awkward if you start speaking Spanish to someone who looks like they might speak Spanish and then they don't speak Spanish, okay? So you kind of have to gauge that and you have to kind of be sensitive. Well, anyway, it finally happened with this lady. We launched out into Spanish and uh, it, it just, in the, I don't know how to explain it other than it was like you entered a parallel dimension, because there was this this connection, it 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 was no longer I was customer, she was waitress. It was hey, we're just talking, right? We're we're so I got and it was in that conversation that I got to ask her her name. I got to ask her where she's from, asked about her parents, she asked how long we moved here. So it opened up a whole realm of possibilities. And you can have a conversation like that, really just learning, I would say, Brenda, what would you say, 30 sentences? I mean, like very basic, very basic. You just memorize the phrase, there's usually an expected response to the phrase. You could easily have a five-minute conversation. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. How can I pray for you? I mean, it opens up possibilities, okay? So that's just my little testimony on why it'd be good for you to learn. It'd be good for exercise for your brain. Uh, be good for your kids. But we have several options. Come find out what those are uh, immediately following the service. Okay, next thing. Um, If you are interested, we are looking for someone who can help fulfill some office duties here at the church, uh, fulfill some administrative tasks. Uh, In the past, Nicole has been helping us, and she has gone far above and beyond what was expected when she initially took the role. I don't... Amen. 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 Uh, in, what was in what was intended to be a temporary role, she has, uh, that stretched out to what, like a year and a half, two years? Three years! <laughs> Three years. So, uh, she, she has done more than what was asked or required, um, and we are now looking for someone to kind of take that over and to fill that in a more permanent way, even though three years, I think, makes it permanent. But um, she, she has done a phenomenal job. But uh, if you're interested, come talk to me, uh, and we can talk about what that looks like. It's, it's part-time. It's about 15, 20 hours a week. Um, and uh, if you're interested, come talk to me. Okay, moving on. Uh, let's do this. Uh, we need to do some business. And so um, I'm going to say this. If you are a guest uh, and you would like to leave, I would totally understand. We're going to do some church business. You're more than welcome to stay. Don't feel like you have to, though. But what we're going to do now is do some church business. So we're going to pass out some forms. If anybody does not have one of these forms, we need to give it to you. But if you're a guest and you'd like to leave now, We understand. God bless you. We hope you have a great week. Thank you for being here this morning, but we need to do uh, some, some church business, some membership business.